This month, we've heard remarkable news on the progress of three COVID-19 vaccines. Early data for two of the vaccines show reductions in new infections by more than 90%, and the third is more efficacious than the annual flu shot is against influenza. A vaccine has never been developed this fast, but the news still has some communities concerned. In America, medicine has not treated all races equally, and those scars caused decades ago still hurt today. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. To get a deeper understanding of what's going on, we have two reporters here today, Jonathan Wozen, who covers biotech, and Andrea lopez Villafania, who covers communities for the Union-Tribune. Let's start with recapping the vaccine development so far. How unprecedented is this speed of science, Jonathan? Yeah, well, it's completely unprecedented, like essentially everything else that's happened in the past almost 12 months now. The idea that you'd have essentially the, the entire world scientific community focused on coming up with one vaccine for one virus with government pouring in billions of dollars in support trying to expedite that. Uh, the fact that we didn't know what this virus was until early in the year. I think Chinese scientists basically uploaded the genetic sequence of the virus so people could see what we were dealing with in early January, mid-January. And now about you know 10 months later, we have initial data from actually three different major vaccine developers suggesting that they have vaccines that in some cases are 95%, roughly 90% effective in keeping people from getting sick. So it's it's never gone faster. And if you had told somebody a year ago that a vaccine might come together this quickly, I, I don't think they would have believed you. I don't think I would have. So. Mm-hmm. Certainly. It's been truly unprecedented. And, you know, normally development of vaccines and all medicines, you know, are kind of drive by the economy itself, you know, supply and demand. While in this case, that's kind of thrown out the window in which all governments and all industry are all working toward this one goal. Well, yeah, the demand is big because it's a global pandemic. So the, the demand is is huge. And uh, yeah, I think generally what happens in the past with other infectious diseases is that you have some cases of people getting sick. And then by the time researchers kind of scramble to start working on a vaccine, uh, that outbreak gets contained and, and eventually goes away. But um, here we have a virus that's infectious enough. And frankly, we haven't done enough to control that spread uh, to the point where a vaccine will have to be one of the big ways that we get beyond the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that speed of science is causing some concern among some groups. Uh can you explain some of those historical events that caused some concerns, uh, particularly among Black Americans? Yeah, I can speak to a couple. So, you know, when we think about this vaccine race or push, however you want to call it, it's been driven by the government to some degree and, uh, you know, medical researchers. And when you look, well, how, how is have those institutions treated or interacted with communities of color? You know, we can always think about the Tuskegee experiment where the U.S. government tracked about uh, 600 black men, 400 had syphilis, 200 didn't, over 40 years uh, because they wanted to see how the disease progressed naturally. Uh, this Most of the study included was during a time when we knew how to cure syphilis. You give people a couple of penicillin injections and uh, that essentially clears the bacteria. Um, and the people in the study thought they were being treated, but actually were not. You know, we can go a little further back, century back uh, to the 19th century. And 
uh, surgeons performing operations on enslaved women who didn't have anesthesia because they people believe that uh, black people don't feel pain as easily that their nerve endings aren't aren't as sensitive as white people uh, and now we can look at you know things going on right now in terms of uh, you know black and Native American women being more likely to die in childbirth and uh, black and his Hispanic people uh, not being taken as seriously when they show up to doc to doctor's office with pain not getting treated for that um, as frequently so there's a history but there's also you know it's past and present I think and one person we, we spoke with uh, local pastors said basically they're not we don't feel like the government's taking good care of us right now um, and that's led to just a general mistrust of uh, medicine for all of these different reasons. Mm -hmm. And Andrea, can you speak to the Latino community about how they feel about how quickly this science has progressed? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the resident I spoke with, she just had a ton of questions and super valid questions. And um, just people that I had reached out to didn't necessarily interview, but was just kind of messaging. Um, their biggest thing was, we don't even know what's going on, right? They feel like every time they log on uh, to Facebook or they watch the news, they're learning something new about the virus. So in a way, they feel like we are just learning these things about the virus. How is it possible that they're going to, you know, pump these vaccines in us and we don't know what's in them? Like, we don't know anything. And they, you know, a lot of people feel that they haven't had an opportunity to really have someone explain to them, you know, why this process is moving so quickly, how it's possible that this process is moving so quickly. So um, a lot of people have just a lot of questions. And like the resident I spoke with, she was interesting because, you know, she was saying from her Latino side of her family, um, they, they have a lot of beliefs in the holistic medicine. So that was personal to her, but you hear that with other communities as well. And so um, she was very um, concerned about taking a, a vaccine at this point. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of the kind of communicative, you know, barriers that government traditionally faces with most minorities are kind of the cause for this concern kind of broadly, right? Yeah. And I mean, we've seen that too, just at the beginning of this virus. It's It's been hard for some government agencies to make that connection with Latino residents, even here in San Diego, getting out the information. They relied a lot on nonprofits to um, reach out to those communities, mostly impacted, especially among the Latino community. I mean, you know, you have a lot of them that are in these zip codes. They live in these zip codes that have been most impacted by the virus. And they also tend to be frontline workers. So they don't have, you know, the ability to stay home and um, be safe. They also tend to live together with a lot of different family members. So if one person gets sick, then you have a higher chance of a whole household getting sick. And um, some of this information and how to take care of yourself and be safe, um, it's been difficult for these like government agencies to be able to reach out to these communities and really educate them. There could be language barriers, cultural barriers, um, and then just general mistrust. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And going back to the trials themselves, how well have they been doing in making sure that they have a diverse, you know, cross-section of the population to test this vaccine on? Yeah, I can say a little bit about that. So, you know, one of the companies, Moderna, which uh, was one of the companies we looked at in, in this story, they enrolled about 30,000 Americans in their national trial. Uh, and they actually slowed down the enrollment sort of mid-trial uh, to basically make a concerted effort to um, get better demographic representation in their study. 
that seemed to work for Moderna at national level. And I'm just looking to pull up some of the data that we were able to get by reaching out to the uh, trial sites in San Diego to get a sense of who's in the trial. So, you know, in San Diego, we have about 1,200 people that um, enrolled in, in Moderna's trial and uh, roughly, you know, 60% white, 25%. Hispanic, 7% Asian, 3% uh, Black, 3% um, multiracial, about a percent and a half uh, Native American Pacific Islanders. So, you know, the county being around 45% white, um, a third uh, a third Hispanic, you know, 13% Asian, 5% um, Black. So, you know, there, there's some discrepancies there, but, um, you know, I, I think it loosely looks more like the demographics of San Diego than like the country, um, as far as the people who who signed up here, and uh, you know, one of the things we looked at in the story is that uh, people are interested in this information. So, you know, we have Shane Harris from the uh, People's Alliance for Justice had has been pretty outspoken in asking these drug developers, these vaccine developers, as well as the the county for uh, a breakdown really of of who's in these trials um, to see well, are there you know to what degree are communities of color represented, underrepresented, overrepresented in, in what's going on here. Um, so hopefully, you know, us sharing a little bit of that information will give people a, a sense of how the trials are being done um, and give people a little sense of transparency too. Mm -hmm. And just speaking somewhat scientifically, but how common is it that medicines have different effects among people with uh, different races? Because, you know, race is more of a social construct than, you know, actual genetic differences. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a really good question. So, yeah, I mean, most people, people of all races are pretty close to genetically identical. Uh, really, when you're recruiting people of different races into a study, you're doing a couple of different things. You're capturing uh, the fact that people of different backgrounds tend to have different, you know, pre-existing conditions based on uh, the way they work, the way they live, uh, which oftentimes has to do with the opportunities they have. So we know that, that COVID tends to hit people with various pre-existing conditions uh, hardest, whether that's high blood pressure or heart disease. And we know these are issues that uh, affect communities of color um, relative to their population, even more so than the general population. So you're, you're actually pulling in more of these societal, what people in medicine would call social determinants of health than necessarily some underlying genetic difference. Um, and I'll, I'll obviously you're also giving the public a sense that, uh, listen, when this thing comes out, it's been tested broadly across the public, across the general population. Mm -hmm. And uh, from your reporting, do you have a sense of what it would take for this trust to be rebuilt? Uh, Andrea, could you go first? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, the resident I spoke with just had a bunch of questions and just, you know, she was kind of hoping that there would be an opportunity where someone could answer those questions and um, she would feel safe enough to have her family take the vaccine. And I think that's what um, Shane Harris from the People's Alliance for Justice also touched on, you know, whether it's a possibility to host some sort of town halls. I think we mentioned in our story that some of the researchers were meeting with different groups one of those, uh, the Black Nurses Association, and, you know, they hosted um, just kind of a, a webinar. It wasn't open to the public, but, you know, they 
they asked questions and they had an opportunity to ask these researchers questions. And I think that was very helpful for everyone. So um, maybe some sort of, you know, it's kind of crazy to think of a giant Zoom <laughs> town hall, but um, maybe something like that where people um, can log on and learn a little bit more. And, you know, if there's an opportunity to email questions or comment questions, I think that would um, ease some people's minds. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan? Yeah, no, I think that's probably number one in terms of what's what's important. Um, I I know to some degree there there are people who are uh, trying to you know function as kind of trusted messengers in in uh, communicating about vaccines. So one of the people we spoke with was uh, the mayor of National City, Alejandra Soto Solis, and she got vaccinated as part of uh, one of the trials, uh, actually Johnson and Johnson's vaccine trial. Uh, which has a site in National City, and you know, she said that, that was important to her because you know she's a third-generation National City resident, um, has deep roots there, and wants her neighbors and people who know her and trust her to uh, be able to see that she's participating and get a sense that okay, the science is moving forward uh, carefully. You know, if if the mayor says that this this uh, vaccine trial is legit, then you know, this is something we should take seriously. So that's something she's doing. There are other, you know, there are doctors in the county who are doing similar things, um, who are also reviewing or going to be reviewing any vaccine that gets approved. So I think some combination of uh, being able to ask those questions that everybody has and get direct answers from, you know, the researchers who are, are credible sources. Um, and then also having people you know who, you, know, you trust, you can speak to um, how the trials are being done, how the vaccines are being made. Mm -hmm. And uh, one other element of all of this was uh, during uh, the later stages of the election, President Donald Trump said multiple times that there would be a vaccine uh, before the election. Uh, that didn't actually happen. The first data kind of came out the week after the election. But do you think those promises uh, had some negative effects in the community? Just the fact of, you know, such a large voice saying another falsehood? Well, I think that turned a lot of people off. I, I, I think, uh, you know, we I, I spoke with some people who were very concerned about Operation Warp Speed, even just kind of from the uh, inception, uh, moving too quickly, and then just the idea associated with, um, even frankly, the name of it. So, yeah, I've, I've I've spoken with people. Unfortunately, I mean, this has all gotten so politicized, and and so I think, yeah, hearing that the timing of the vaccine would line up potentially with the timing of the national election um, was a big concern for, for some people. Mm -hmm. And also uh, another point of this is that there are some people who don't believe in vaccines at all. They're anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists. To what extent does that kind of play into, you know, the overall need of having a certain part of the population vaccinated in order to end this pandemic are health experts worried that that combined with the concern of minorities might slow down the point in which we are at herd immunity? Yeah, I think generally researchers are concerned about whether enough people would take a vaccine for it to really be helpful in bringing the pandemic to, to an end. So generally what, what you need is you need enough people who've been protected against the virus that the virus doesn't have as many places it can go. It doesn't have as many kind of safe harbors 
Um, and the best way to get there, frankly, without a bunch of people getting really sick and going, going to the hospital and dying is to have a wide vaccination program. Um, how many people need to get the vaccine is kind of the big question. But I've spoken with folks at UC San Diego who say, even if the vaccine uh, was 100% effective, which you know none of these will be, but potentially could be quite close. Uh, but even if the vaccine were you know, 100% effective, you'd, you'd still like to see you know, maybe 75% of, 75 of people take the vaccine. Um, that depends on the degree to which uh, people are wearing masks and doing other types of things that limit the spread of, of COVID. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely a certain critical mass of people you need. And if enough folks are just generally skeptical about vaccines or skeptical in particular about this vaccine, and I guess, Andrea, you, you uh, did that short story last week. So I should let you talk a little bit about the percentage of San Diegans and what we learned there. Yeah, can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah, that one, that one was interesting. And I want to say that um, we actually were seeing higher uh, percentages of people willing to take a vaccine, at least here in this area in San Diego, different compared to what we're seeing nationally. I think here uh, with the poll that I reported on particularly, um, they, they only had a small number of um, Black residents that participated. So it was hard to see if they're uh, were some differences among minorities. But one thing that was interesting, and I think I talked to Jonathan about this, was um, the percentage of people who said they'd be willing to um, hold off on taking their vaccine to allow possibly uh, frontline workers or um, people with underlying health conditions, right? Those most vulnerable uh, to take the vaccine. I think that was like something crazy, maybe 91%. And uh, we spoke about this and I was like, oh, maybe, you know, people are very kind and <laughs> they want um, those most vulnerable to take the vaccine. But then we were kind of throwing around the idea that maybe it's just people want to see <laughs> what happens first. So let them take the vaccine first, but we don't know. So, um, yeah, there, there were interesting numbers. Definitely people were um, willing to, you know, take a vaccine. Mm hmm. But also, that's the entire rollout strategy when it gets to that point anyway. It's first vaccinate the people that are most at risk and are frontline workers, and then eventually it'll get to people who are healthy and are likely to survive COVID-19. So in a sense, that's going to play out whenever it happens. Yeah, it seems like people are on board with that kind of <laughs> gradual rollout. I mean, one of the things I'm going to be hopefully digging into Next week, probably in earnest, is you know what what's the county's plan for getting a vaccine out? And I, I suspect we'll be following the state blueprint, but uh, Nick Mascioni at Health and Human Services is going to be directing that. So I, I expect to hear more and more from the county, uh, hopefully next week, uh, because you know we're at a point where Pfizer has already applied for emergency authorization. Uh, Moderna probably will do that very soon. AstraZeneca potentially could do that. Uh, probably in a matter of weeks um, or a bit longer. So it, it's all becoming very real. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that we're in a really bad place right now in terms of the spread of the virus and the scope of the pandemic. But you know, one of the things I've been hearing is basically that hope is on the way, but we do need to make it through the winter. Um, so these vaccines can actually help us in the spring. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan, you were the reporter over the weekend when we hit several uh, new milestones in new cases countywide. Can you recap just how bad the current situation is right now? 
Yeah, so to put it in context, uh, not yesterday, but the previous Sunday, we reported a little bit over a thousand cases, which was a single day record. And then this past Friday, we reported slightly more is actually, I think, 1,091 cases, which was a new record. And then the day after that, so that was Saturday when I was working, we reported uh, 1,478 cases. So we're getting to a point where we're starting to have single day records one day after the next, which doesn't really bode well. That's not where you want to be. And it's especially not where you want to be leading into a major holiday week. So, you know, we know based on estimates from uh, the airport authority that there will probably be about 30,000 people flying out of and into the San Diego International Airport. That's less than we typically see, which would be around 80,000 this time of year, but it's also still tens of thousands of people at a point in time when the virus is widely spread across the country. So, you know, I've spoken with doctors who fully expect that a couple of weeks after Thanksgiving, we might be seeing sort of a further uh, steeper climb in cases. Eventually that's gonna mean people being in the hospital as well. And, you know, we have treatments that are coming down the pipeline. We have uh, vaccines that are coming down the pipeline, but they're not gonna make it in time for people to get sick in early December. And so, you know, we, we may have some, hopefully won't, but may have some kind of grim news um, shortly after the holiday break. Yes, certainly. And uh, part of the concern is that at this point, medical resources are so stretched that there may not be beds for people if this continues this exponential rise. And of course, you know, someone has to be there to take care of you if you're in the hospital. So if things get magnitudes levels worse, uh, you know, the people dying is going to increase as well. Yeah, I mean, doctors have gotten much better, I think, at, at treating this disease over the course of the past year. There's actually data showing that mortality rates have, have gone down. Um, part of that's just the experience of working with so many patients. But, you know, if you're overwhelmed with patients, if you're burnt out because you've been treating patients for, uh, you know, most of the past year without really taking a break, then th those are things that could uh, kind of undermine um, the benefits of that experience. So uh, those are all points of concern. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we get into the holiday season and, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still on the tunnel. Are there any questions that you hope get answered when it comes to the intersection of COVID-19 and race? Uh, Andrea, can you go first? Yeah, I'm curious. I, you know, I think we're still seeing um, COVID-19 case growth um, highest in these, you know, South San Diego zip codes. So I'm curious to see, you know, what kind of outreach um, is being done or what kind of assistance is being provided for uh, some of these families in, in the South Bay that um, have been impacted the greatest. And, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of them are, are frontline workers and um, essential workers working at the grocery stores and, you know, they're going day by day working, but they don't really have anywhere to fall back on if they do get sick, both economically or somewhere to stay. So just curious, you know, what's being done to help them. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan? Well, I guess the big long-term question, and, and this is something that came up in this story as well. Um, so obviously we have this pandemic right now, that, you know, it's an infectious virus. It can spread from 
any person to any person, regardless of your kind of background or, or what you look like. And I think I spoke with some bioethicists who sort of in some ways were saying, well, is part of the, the push for in, including people of color in these trials um, and as part of this process that people you know, outside of those communities are concerned that down the line, you know, that they could be infected if not everybody's vaccinated, if, if not everyone has um, gotten their COVID shot. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to see once we get past the, the pandemic, uh, if there is any sustained interest in dealing with kind of the underlying reasons that, um, you know, Black and Latino, uh, Latino populations and, um, you know, Asian populations are uh, consistently the most affected by new diseases. So that's, you know, uh, I can't even say the million dollars. That's, that's the big ultimate question. And, you know, we'll see how that, we'll see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. All right. Andrew Lopez Villafana, Jonathan Wozen, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you're curious about how Greater San Diego is working toward building a better future, listen to the UT's Luis Cruz on Together San Diego. Join in on conversations with activists, nonprofits, and companies who are finding out ways this moment can change San Diego for the better. Listen in on Facebook. For a guide to all of our live streaming programming, check out the schedule on uniontrip.com. Until next time.